This is Chris Bushick with PDX Privacy. This is Freddie Martinez with Lucy Parsons Labs. This is Rory Mirror with the EFF, and you're listening to Firewalls Firewall Don't, Don't Stop, Stop Dragons. Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today, we have episode 328 for June 12th, 2023. We've got a great interview for you today, and let, let me set it up this way. I've been wanting to sort of extend the reach of my efforts here. You know, for a long time, that meant focusing on increasing the size of my audience, you know, trying to reach more people, help them improve their personal cybersecurity and privacy. Turns out that's a hard hard thing to do with the podcast market and the book market are both very crowded. And it's, it's really hard to convince people to even look for information or education about cybersecurity and privacy, let alone get them to subscribe to a newsletter or read a book or listen to a podcast about it. But last year, it sort of hit me, you know, that I also should be encouraging my existing audience to try to help other people. And it's not like I've never done that. But it really just kind of hit me as a as a as a thought that, you know, I really should be trying to leverage you folks, the people that are, that are already care enough about these issues to pay real attention to them, to create some secondary and perhaps even tertiary impacts, that that is a way that I could help more people by, you know, convincing the people that are already following me in one way, shape or form to go out and help others. So uh, to that end, last end of last year, I created a set of coupons that you can download and give away to friends and family or really to anybody, you know, as sort of a promise to help them with some specific privacy or security upgrades. Each coupon, you know, has kind of a theme to it. And it's got, you know, three to five different little subtasks most of which map directly to tips from my book as things that I think are important things, but may be difficult for somebody to do or something that they might be inclined to do, but would do if they had someone to help them do it. Or perhaps if you're feeling really generous, you know, somebody to do those things for them. And by the way, if you're interested, you can check those out. Uh, You can read the article I wrote about this. And in that article, there's a link to download the coupons. Go to fdsd.me slash coupons. And you can read the article about that and find the coupons there. And by the way, I'm going to be adding some more coupons soon because that is part of this upcoming effort around giving away some of my cool dragon challenge coins. But stay tuned after the interview for more information about that. But today I want to see if I can maybe inspire you to find or heck even create a local group that focuses on advocacy or policy or education around an issue that you care about. That is another way that you can kind of get out there and make a difference. And it turns out that there are already support systems in place to help you do this. One of those, uh, one of my favorites, is the Electronic Frontier Alliance, which is a subsidiary or part of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who I've been talking up for years because they do amazing work. And we've had several, several people over the years interviewed on this show from the EFF. They are very gracious about making folks available for different topic areas. And today is no exception. We'll be talking with Rory Mirror, who is uh, EFF's Associate Director of Community Organizing, and they coordinate the support of the local advocates, you know, primarily through grassroots stuff like the EFA. But we are also going to be talking with two folks who have actually done this, who have created Electronic Frontier Alliance groups, one called PDX Privacy and the other called the Lucy Parsons Project. And that would be Chris Bushick and Freddie Martinez, respectively. And so what I wanted to do with this is kind of show you, first of all, that it's possible that there are, if you are interested perhaps in doing this, that there are groups out there that can help you do this, and then talk to some people who have actually done it uh, in coordination with the EFA and kind of get some of their experiences, what they've learned and what some of their successes were and what advice they might have for you or someone who might want to get into this. So with that as our setup, let's get right to our panel discussion about getting involved and in particular, the Electronic Frontier Alliance. Rory is EFF's Associate Director of Community Organizing. They organize EFF support of local advocates, primarily through the grassroots information sharing network, the Electronic Frontier Alliance. Welcome to the show, Rory. Hey, thanks for having me on. And we recently interviewed Albert Fox Kahn and Evan Enzer from the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project in New York City, uh, a.k.a. STOP. 
and which turned out was a member of the EFA, which I didn't actually realize until I interviewed them, and which made me think about doing this interview. So today we have two more EFA success stories to tell you about. The Lucy Parsons Labs in Chicago, Illinois, represented here today by Freddie Martinez, and the PDX Privacy from Portland, Oregon, represented by Chris Blishik. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. All right. Uh, Roy, why don't you give us a quick refresher on what the Electronic Frontier Foundation is all about? And then, because uh, I don't think we've covered this before, tell us you know, how, when, and why it launched the Electronic Frontier Alliance. Sure. I'll try to give the short version. Uh, EFF is a nonprofit uh, dedicated to protecting civil liberties of all peoples of the world uh, by ensuring technology supports freedom, justice, and innovation. It started about 33 years ago in response to some illegal raids by the Secret Service. That's a fun story for another time. Um, the initial goal was to fund legal cases uh, where civil liberties were being challenged in the dis- digital world, thus the foundation in our name. Uh, fast forward a few decades, though, we're no longer a foundation, but a nonprofit law firm, uh, which takes on such cases ourselves, um, as well as an advocacy group. So we're not only defending civil liberties in the courts, uh, but trying to shape legislative policy, public opinion, and the digital infrastructure itself with tools like CertBot and HTTPS everywhere. Mm-hmm. As for the EFA, EFF's scope, as I mentioned, quite big, all peoples of the world, um, in all intersections of tech and civil liberties. But EFF is still a relatively small group. Even now, we're the biggest we've ever been, but we can't be everywhere all the time shaping policy. And the only way to really effectively work in other locations is to um, have local experts uh, providing some ground truth uh, to our policies and really being in tune with what the community they're a part of needs more directly. So EFF has always uh, tried to work with local partners on local issues, but it wasn't until 2016 when there was a swell of grassroots advocacy um, around privacy and surveillance uh, where the EFF decided to offer more long-term support by forming EFF's organizing team, which I currently lead. And our team is basically to be there for local advocates, even those that aren't in the Electronic Frontier Alliance, uh, to help connect them to resources and support as best we can. But the Electronic Frontier Alliance is our primary project. Uh, It is a grassroots network um, of fully independent groups. The primary purpose is to be an information sharing network. So these local experts can talk to each other about their issues, get support from each other, and say, hey, this is working in my city. Uh, it's a strategy you might want to work in, with in your city. Here's a presentation I made. You might want to just mm. uh, remix it yourself um, mm-hmm. and start from there. So you're not starting from scratch. And this includes, while EFF wants to offer our expertise um, and support directly whenever we can, we also don't want to be a bottleneck. So we really mm. strive for it to be more of a mesh where groups are able to offer each other support, form coalitions with each other, even if the EFF isn't directly involved. The main benefits EFF does try to provide these groups, though, is holding space for these groups to meet each other and collaborate. So we have regular virtual meetings, Mm. uh, some online spaces like a Mattermost chat server uh, and an email listserv. Um, And then not for the last few years, but increasingly more in-person events where folks can um, meet up and uh, strategize together. The other kind of bucket of support is access to EFF uh, expertise um, in our network. So if someone has a piece of local legislation they want to get a lawyer's opinion on, uh, pending capacity, we try to offer that uh, technical expertise, connecting people to notable speakers they might have issues mm. uh, reaching out to directly. We're happy to kind of connect them virtually. And then the last form of support is access to EFF's platform. Uh, we try to do a lot of work to raise the profile of EFA groups and their work through our blog, our calendar, social media, et cetera, um, just getting folks to know about all the great work EFA groups are doing. Um, and thank you for being a part of that and <laughs> lifting up to FA groups today. Fantastic. That's awesome. All right. Uh, Freddie, why don't you tell us about the origins of the Lucy Parsons Project and what your role is there? Yeah. So the Lucy Parsons Labs got founded about six years ago, and we're going in year seven uh, in Chicago, primarily as a group of friends who were interested in issues of like technology, its impact on civil rights and civil liberties. And part of the reason behind it was, you know, there's a, there's always this kind of focus on places like New York or San Francisco or Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. And 
you know, Chicago is the third most populous city in the country. And so there was quite like a need for um, some kind of presence, but also kind of just a lot of us felt that there was no reason why we couldn't be the people doing that kind of work. And, and so it's great to have like allies like the EFF, but it's also important to recognize that like we can sort of operate autonomously and with and you know also become the experts in our own community and and not really have to rely or, or sort of be a you know there's not one bottleneck as chris or sorry as rory alluded alluded to and so that's the origin of the project and we joined the efa sort of i think we were one of the first groups that joined hmm. maybe four years ago now so it's been it's been a massively successful project for us and and EFA has been, we've, we've been with the EFA for a long time. So what is your role there? Uh, I'm one of the founders and executive directors. Yeah. All right. Uh, Chris, what about PDX Privacy and uh, what drove you to found that? PDX Privacy is a nonprofit focused on privacy, government transparency, and digital rights in the Portland metro area. I had been involved with another EFA group, Portland's Techno-Activism Third Monday, since around 2015, and at that time, I was also volunteering with the ACLU of Oregon. They were set to, the ACLU was set to begin working on getting a CCOPS ordinance in Portland. Mm. And CCOPS is community control over police surveillance. Basically, these ordinances put the decision-making about use of surveillance in the hands of the community members and their elected officials rather than police. So they can decide if what, if any surveillance system should be used and when it's okay to use them and in what ways. Mm-hmm. Well, I was, and I still am very interested in privacy and surveillance issues. And back then I was looking to get involved in that effort. And well, after the 2016 election though, things changed a little bit and ACLU shifted their focus to more pressing matters at the time, like the Muslim bans and and immigrant related issues. Mm. So privacy kind of got shifted to the back burner and I really didn't want to see that effort die. So I set out to find other people who cared. And initially back in 2017, PDX Privacy was just me and a Twitter account, but <laughs> I slowly started to find people. And while we're still on the small side these days, we're officially an Oregon nonprofit. Fantastic, that's awesome. So you've already talked a little bit about, you know, how you found the EFA um, and why you joined. Um, so what sort of impacts has the EFA had directly on your organizations? Like, what would you say has been some of the things that they've helped you with the most? Um, I think a lot of cross-collaboration, cross-country collaboration. I think, Chris, I met at one of these events talking about uh, a particular surveillance technology. And that I don't think that would have been hap- that would have happened without the EFA. Um, so... And I think part of the thing that is really important for us, like Lucy Parsons Labs does a lot of research, for example, and we we created a website called chicagopolicesurveillance.com. And there's all of the documents that we had and sort of a, a explainer 101. And part of the reason behind that is we don't want people to reinvent the wheel. We want, you know, our work to be helpful for campaigns. And, um, and so there has been, you know, communication between us in Chicago and folks down in Portland about various things that they want to organize around. And so, you know, I think really creating space where you're a not creating the wheel, but recreating the wheel, but also like we just want to get our, you know, organizing done and, and someone can come in and, and lend um, some mutual aid. So that's been, that's been a really important thing for us to see. And I, I will also mention that, it is not unheard of for people across the country to get in touch being like, there was this thing that was happening in my local town and we used your resource and mm. we got this thing shut down, um, which is great because, mm-hmm. because like, I think, you know, no one wants to be sort of the, the bottleneck, but also we do also need to support each other across the country as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, how about you? I've also found the collaboration to be very helpful. We have monthly meetings via EFA and and we get actually twice a month and we get to update each other on what work we're doing. And also you kind of get a heads up if say some invasive surveillance tech is coming to one Mm. city, then then we all have Mm -hmm. a heads up that, hey, that might be headed toward us next and we can share what worked, what didn't work. Then the meetings also have 
lots of great information. Rory and their team provide a lot of uh, presenters that come and share knowledge from on all kinds of things, technical issues, policy issues, even organizing related things like how to onboard new members. And it's been wonderful for them helping us promote our events and, and give some visibility to that. So we're very grateful. Well, that sounds fantastic. I mean, it really sounds like kind of like the best of both worlds. I mean, it's decentralized to the point where you guys have full autonomy and it, it's not getting your way. It's not impeding you. And yet you get a chance to collaborate with a bunch of other people with like-minded, uh, other like-minded groups with, and, and I think it's really cool, for example, that, hey, we're seeing this new tech. Are you seeing this in your city? I mean, that's that's kind of cool, actually. I, I dig that. Uh, that's awesome. Roy, does, does this sound like typical stories for EFA groups uh, for to you? You know, maybe what are some other maybe types of organizations that have joined the EFA? Right. Yeah. There's not a lot of typical uh, groups or <laughs> stories in the EFA. It's a really wide range of types of groups with okay. different focuses. If I were to put it in terms of a Venn diagram, I think the three circles would be public advocates. Uh, so folks that are doing trying to shape public policy on the state, municipal, or institutional level. The other circle being community spaces. So uh, like hacker spaces or maker spaces or even um, art spaces that are trying to hold a community space. I keep saying space on this, but um, <laughs> holding space for uh, folks to get together and talk about these issues and express themselves on these issues. And then the last uh, circle being grassroots educators who are uh, like the group I got started with, uh, Cyper Collective uh, EFA member, that really focus on know your rights trainings, um, cybersecurity trainings, and bringing awareness of these digital rights issues to the broader community and folks that might not already be thinking about it um, and trying to get out of the bubble there. These categories exclude stuff like research projects and people making uh, their own podcasts and the like, but this is kind of a helpful map of getting a sense of kind of types of engagement uh, these groups are doing with their local community. There's also worth noting a huge variation in size. There are some uh, much bigger groups, uh, like a former guest of yours, uh, Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, mm -hmm. has salaried employees um, and established funding. And then there, it ranges all the way down to a handful of students at a university that uh, want to raise these issues on their local campus. No funding, just people power. Mm. So there's a huge variation uh, in kind of modes and size, and as well as topics. Um, Plenty of folks focus on uh, C-COPs and police surveillance, but uh, there's also folks uh, more focused on uh, creative expression and hacker issues. <laughs> um, sure. Code is right. Well, I want to explain these things because I'm hoping the audience will will say, hey, you know what, that, that could have been me or I, I got an issue I want to pursue. So I'm, I'm really hoping to kind of you know, show that anybody could do these things. So I'm curious, Freddie and Chris, what, what did you guys do before you started these organizations? Did, you know, working for your group become a full-time job or are you still splitting time with whatever your previous occupation or career was? And then I'm, I'm also curious, you know, how difficult or scary was it for you to make these kind of commitments? You know, what was it like for you deciding to, to start this whole thing up? Sure. I was a tech worker. I was working as a software engineer Night shifts give you a lot of time to do a lot of research. Hmm. And I was always interested in, you know, following the news, the like, you know, Ars Technica blog, I would read every day. So I knew quite a bit about these issues. Um, and I thought I was really, I was interested in them. How I got started was I just started filing FOIA requests. Oh, really? Because, you know, public records requests and, and uh, the Freedom Information Act are incredibly powerful tools. In, in theory, but you know, when the rubber meets the road, a lot of it, a lot of the agencies that I was sending requests to would stonewall me. Um, and I got very, very frustrated by that very quickly. And uh, there's this kind of thing that happens where I, I guess like government officials uh, just kind of expect you to go away. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I had a lot of free time on my hand. Plus, I'll, I kind of have a personality where it's like I won't give up the thing mm -hmm. until. So I was I have a very obnoxious personality. <laughs> and so I sort of decided that I would spend years of my life fighting over records requests. And, and that was quite fruitful. Um, my first FOIA request ended up taking multiple years to litigate and made sort of national news. And so I kind of got the bug and, and realized that there was Wait, something. Wait, really? It made national news? What was it? It, it was, um, we, we were fighting um, to get records around uh, Southside simulators and uh. and how police were deploying them and paying for them and things like that. 
And it ended up actually being many multiple year investigations. So I began this investigation into like cell site simulator technology and how it was being paid for and where it was being used and and all of these things. Um, And so it ended up becoming like a national story. It ended up being, yeah, it ended up being big and, and maybe because I was lucky, but it was my first FOIA. And so, yeah, that kind of became hmm. a, a hobby of mine. And then over the years, I sort of became an expert on FOIA because I became an expert on how to fight denials and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the origin story uh, for how I got started. But yeah, just like a board tech worker who really was following these issues closely and just decided to start sending requests and investigating things in my own backyard. So is this a full-time thing for you now, or are you still splitting time with your software engineering job? <laughs> no, I'm not a software engineer Engineer now. Yeah, I, I mean, like my job now, I'm a full-time researcher, and I've been sort of documenting, and I've been a, sort of an expert on police surveillance for a couple of years now. So so yeah, so now it's my, my full-time job. All right, cool. Chris, how about you? I've done a number of things throughout my career. My my background is in electrical engineering, and I used to be a rocket scientist. Really? Oh, that's awesome. For real. <laughs> and um, I also used to mix bands. I worked in huh. software. I wrote articles for an audio magazine. These days, actually, when I'm not doing privacy work, I build electronics for the film industry. So I am like all over there, but I just, I've always cared about privacy and and I, I've, I've been aware of all the kind of surveillance and the hacking kind of things. And I think I'm one of those people that that kind of with the Snowden stuff, I just kind of like started becoming more and more aware of that and caring more about it and seeing how our privacy is being invaded. And I and I just wanted to do something about that. And that's where I got my in. I I've also tried FOIA requests, but I'm not quite as good as them at them. And Freddie and I had spoken about those because I was asking, how do you get all these records? And <laughs> I've not had as good of luck. I guess I'm, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> if I keep trying, I get some. You got to work a, a night job. Or night <laughs> <job>. uh, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> well, you know, it's not surprising to me that you mentioned Snowden. I had so many people mentioned that. And I, and that's something that it, over the years, like I, I'd gotten kind of jaded thinking, man, I, when the Snowden stuff came out, that, that inspired me as well. That really got me. That's why I, I wrote the book and started to be down the path that I'm on now as well. But I kept looking back thinking, man, I really thought that was going to have a bigger splash. I really thought that more things were going to change. There's going to be a bigger stink in Washington and there was going to be all this, you know, systemic kind of changes and things like now that it's been exposed, it like, I just felt like nothing happened. But yet, over the years, as I've interviewed more people, so many people have said, I started doing what I'm doing after the Snowden revelations. So they did have a lot of effect. Uh, it just wasn't the effect that, that I thought they would have had at the time. So I, I'm guessing that that some of the things that people would worry about if, if they wanted to start something like this is, okay, where do I, the things I want to do are going to cost money. Uh, so, and I don't have a lot of money, or at least I don't have the money that I need to do what I think I need to do. So Rory, I mean, are there... I mean, I know that EFF doesn't, you know, give financial investment into these things, but are there, do you know of grants or programs that people could apply to? Like, for instance, the Library uh, Freedom Project uh, that Alison McCrina did, I, I think she applied for some grant, got two and a half, like got a quarter million dollars for that, which is huge. I mean, I'm sure that's not a normal story, but are there grant possibilities or other funding sources that people could consider that they might not think about? Yeah. And yeah, Allison's great. But yeah, I think. I want to qualify this with, I'm not an expert in seeking grants. It's uh, its own area of expertise, uh, which is why I think it's really good if you're kind of starting out from scratch, uh, reaching out to local librarians that are familiar with these grant databases, because often mm. the biggest thing that when you start a group, you don't necessarily know what you don't know yet about these sure. grants and what's out there. Um, and a lot of them, especially micro grants, uh, you might qualify for and not realize that they exist even. So I think Definitely finding local support like that. Um, it's been a growing priority with the EFA as well to share information about these sorts of grants. Uh, so uh, the EFF dev team will sometimes share grants. Uh, we encourage EFA members and the public to check out EFF.org slash thanks. And you can see uh, which institutions are supporting EFF's work. And if you're an EFA member, 
it'll give you some ideas of folks to reach out to. There are also some EFA members who themselves offer microgrants. Uh, Calix Institute, for example, um, offers microgrants um, every year that some other EFA members have successfully gotten funding from. The other qualification is uh, to seek grant funding. Unlike direct donations, uh, you will need to be incorporated or have a fiscal sponsor, uh, which uh, kind of increases some of the complications of uh, organizing, especially when you're starting out. So I think it is often a good idea to start with investing your time and investing your work and then seeking these bigger financial responsibilities once you know the direction you're moving in more confidently. All right. So you've said microgrants multiple times now. I've never heard that term. Is that a, that's a thing? Like, like, what does it mean to be a microgrant? And then I'm curious, like, this sounds a little bit like applying for scholarships. Like back when you were in college, like there was just, a, there's a ton of them. Like there's people with money with nothing else, nothing better to do. They're looking for causes they care about and you've got to find them. That's the hard part. You got to find them and figure out what they're giving away. And then you've got to apply. So I'm curious, like how difficult is it? Like, is, is it a multi-step process with writing lots of essays and business plans and crap? Or does sometimes you just go to the right person say, I want to do this. I'm like, okay, here's some money. <laughs> how, how does this work? Yeah. So my understanding, and I'm curious um, if Chris and uh, Freddie probably have more direct experience than I do, but microgrants are often just a one-off uh, smaller sum for a particular project. So the commitment is a little bit smaller, but also the amount of money is a little bit smaller. And yeah, my understanding is it is pretty similar to putting in an application uh, like a job application, you have to be able to sell your work and your writing about it and convince the organization that this will be a good investment for them, that it'll have a disproportionate impact versus how much they're putting into the project. My work with Cyper uh, as an AFA member, uh, we never had a grant <laughs> successfully accepted. So I'm curious uh, what uh, the other folks on the call think. Yeah, Chris, let, let's start with you. Like, have, have you tried applying for grants? Was it difficult? Did you Were you successful in getting them? I mean, I, I know that funding can be kind of an awkward topic to ask people about, but to the extent where you could talk about these things, t tell me what your experience has been. We have not applied for any grants yet. There was one that Rory mentioned through EFA that we considered applying for because it seemed pretty related to our work. There's this chicken and egg aspect of the work too, though, that you need money to do things, but, and then also though you, in order to get the money, you have to have the the ability to do the work to get the money. Right. And, and so you need people, but you need money, but you know, how do you get them in the right order at the right time, mix <laughs> them together? So we, our funding has been just small donations kind of things. And as a small organization, we don't have a huge number of expenses at this point. But there are things, for example, record requests in Portland cost mm. a lot of money. They're they're not they try to make it challenging and expensive so you don't get records. Mm -hmm. But if you, you know, you're basically funneling money to the city just to not give you records. And but <laughs> but that's one potential expense. But if you don't have the money, you can't file the request. But if you don't file the request, then you don't get the data that might help you later to get a grant. Right, right. You know, it's kind of a round, roundabout thing. Freddie, how about you? What's, what's your experience been? Very much the same. There is a lot of self-funding or not self-funding, but just kind of a circular, you know, I, I think like the DIY, I'm going to DIY it. I grew up as a punk kid and then in the 2000s, like, you know, that can kind of work for a little bit. But also like we were quite lucky that in, at least in Illinois, when you, when you file lawsuits for, for public records. If you win, they have to pay your attorney fees. So I've been doing this for five or six years and I've never had to pay attorney fees. Mm. Um, quite the contrary, they they have bought many, many dinners for <laughs> our attorneys and I um, for failing to turn over records. So that's been helpful. <laughs> but the other thing also, just on a serious note, is that when, I mean, we, we get a, a also like small donors, but um, we've been doing this for so long that when we do ask for, for donations, you know, people, people usually provide. And, and it also means that we can, you know, support like local organizing on the ground with, with our research or things like that. So there's kind of like a, like it's a, it's a kind of a hybrid approach where yes, we do rely on individual donors and things like that, but also we 
help people on the ground and that builds a lot of trust in us and so so it's quite easy to ask for we need two thousand dollars for for FOIA budget for the entire year I mean that's that seems like a lot of money if you have no money um, but you break it down and it's you know ten bucks between or whatever you do the math right it's <laughs> between 100 people it's it's like n- nothing so so that also helps quite a bit too well i'd meant to ask this earlier and i that's all i'll swing back to it now what are uh what are obviously i think that stingray thing was really cool but i'm curious thinking back at the things you've managed to accomplish what, what are some of the things you're most proud of with, with your respective groups what were some of your your key successes maybe the things that kind of gave you new life or gave you the you know that that inspiration to like, okay, we, we're, we're doing it. We're actually making a difference here. I think for us, our biggest accomplishment is probably getting the facial recognition bans that were passed in Portland in September of 2020. Mm. Several cities had already had bans in place that banned the use by um, public agencies, but Portland was the first to pass a bill banning use by private entities as well. Oh, wow. And since then, New York City and Baltimore have also passed bans. I believe some mm-hmm. other cities are, have been working on it as well. I'm not sure how that's going for them. But but that just seemed like it was something like our biggest thing. And and um, Now, did any of those, anybody in those cities contact you? Did, did, were you working with, with Baltimore or New York City in any kind of way? Or did they? Did, no, you, okay. no, we've not. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you could have been an inspiration the, for sure, right? I would hope so. I mean, some some other groups like in Washington and some other places had reached out to us to ask, you know, what we did and how that that you know how that all worked, and and we're happy to share whatever we know, but we didn't have anything directly to do with New York or Baltimore. We're just excited to have them along <laughs> as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it served as a, as a model, if nothing else. And Freddie, so you talked about the stingray thing, which is obviously very cool. Any any other stories you'd like to highlight from things that you guys have done? Yeah, so we've been part of a campaign called the Stop Shotswatter Coalition. Mm-hmm. And for those that don't know, Shotswatter is like uh, it builds itself as a gunshot detection system, but it's really just a bunch of mic- um, <laughs> microwaves, microphones mm-hmm. um, all over this country. Or all over the city, and then it'll hear a, a bang, and then it'll send police uh, to deploy. And the reason that uh, I'm quite proud of that campaign um, is kind of a very personal reason, and that there was a there was a young uh, kid, he was 13 years old, named Adam Toledo, who was murdered following one of these alerts in Little Village in Chicago, which is where I grew up. And so, like watching the police footage of that murder was was quite shocking wow but it also meant that when people were asking questions about what is this technology how does it work how does it not work i felt like i could put a bit of my you know i I felt like i was putting myself into like the campaign but in a very personal way yeah um and i felt uh like yeah because you know i think a lot a lot of it is just it was deeply personal, but it also was like, I felt like, you know, I could turn that sort of feeling of, of that could have been any of us into something a little bit more productive. So, so yeah, that, that one in particular resonates with me quite deeply. Rory, what were some of the other big success stories from the EFA? Obviously we talked about stop uh, and these guys here. What, what are some other stories you might want to highlight that, that were EFF related projects? Yeah. So thinking about um, our work with the EFA, it's always a delicate thing because we want to be in a supportive oh, position sure, yeah. and not claim um, other folks. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but I think being supportive of campaigns like the ones mentioned is a major highlight. But even just um, anytime we engage a group that um, hasn't formally been engaged on these issues is the type of win that I always look forward to uh, most recently. EFF joined a few other organizations, um, principally uh, CDT, and opposing the reintroduction of EARNIT. Mm-hmm. Um, and the organizing team did a major outreach within the EFA network to find folks uh, to support to support the opposition <laughs> of yeah. um, EARNIT again. And happy to say we were able to activate 15 groups, uh, many of which hadn't been involved in the former opposition to EARNIT. Um, so I think yeah, any opportunity we have to bring these issues uh, to these community groups that are 
you know, already involved in their local stuff, but being able to bring them on board to EFF's work is what I get excited about in the position. So, uh, Freddie and Chris, what were some of the things that maybe surprised you, or what, what were some of the things that we found most challenging? Like, what were, what, what did you struggle with maybe early on, or something like that? What you know, just getting real. What, what were some of the things you dealt with? I think part of it is breaking through the bubble. That you know, there are people who have name recognition, and being recognized as an expert, especially when you are coming to the work as maybe like through lived experience or because you're a formerly incarcerated person or because you're a student under surveillance, right? There's there's sort of this power dynamic that happens until you have sort of a name. But so that that was a challenge. There, there's definitely a lot of times where I felt like I was overlooked because I wasn't from the right organization or had the right sounding name. So that was the first challenge. Uh, the second one I would say is and this came a little bit later, was staying, staying, uh, like finding joy in the work because, you know, at some point it became, it felt like I was doing this so much in my own free time and because I, I thought it was like, you know, important. But, you know, being a bored tech worker and just firing off FOIAs and doing it because you think it's fun and interesting is different than, yeah, so so for a while it it really did feel like I was just doing this thing because I I thought it was work, um, and so just staying like like you know we got to have fun in life and re- realizing that like we we do need to like just do things because we enjoy them not not because they feel like work, um, so that took you know a bit of decompressing and what was really helpful in that case was bringing more people on and expanding and taking less on. And so that was kind of how we tackled that issue. Uh, yeah, I can totally see that. Chris, how about you? I can so relate to those things. <laughs> Initially starting out, I, I didn't really have any idea how to start. And one of the things I found was there's, I think it was the Sanford Institute of Philanthropy or something. They had a whole bunch of courses online for free that you could take to learn about fundraising and things like that. I started there and then I went to the like small business administration kind of looking there and they don't really help nonprofits, but they still have information like business plans and things like that, that can help. But trying to figure out all the infrastructure stuff is challenging. And then also, again, the stuff about like having the capacity to do things. That's one of our biggest, biggest challenges now, like right now, the city of Portland seems to be working overtime on trying to get all kinds of surveillance in place. They're doing gunshot detection systems, drones, there's a new spy plane, they're working on body-worn cameras. There are all these different things that are related to our areas of focus. And um, one good thing though, is they're working on, they, they just passed, the city just passed a privacy, a surveillance policy resolution. And now they're working to come up with an inventory of all the surveillance systems and they're there are other elements of that, but we're we're we've been trying, we've been involved in that process. But there are so many things to pay attention to. It's really hard to not miss them. And we are a small group and we are all volunteer and everyone has other jobs. So so we're doing our best, but we do miss things sometimes. And 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 it's hard because there are things like say Shotspotter or one of those other companies, they're all they've investors with tons of money. They're looking to make profits. So they're putting their money in there, hoping to get a return. And then, so they're well-funded and they have lots of power that, that we don't have. So it's, it's kind of daunting and just, just a challenge at times. Well, I, well, I think it's always a challenge. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I hear this and I kind of think like kind of Aaron Brockovich kind of like imposter syndrome thing where it's like, do you do you run into the situation where like I'm just a regular person? What am I doing here? <laughs> I'm talking to you know big shot lawyers or big time company PR folks or or law enforcement, and these people do it for a living. And I'm just never running into this feeling like you know, am, am I outclassed here? Am I am I really doing this? And, and have you gotten over that? I guess is maybe maybe the more important question. I think yes and no. I mean, I I do like tell people that the person you're talking to on the other line is still, you know, a person who, you know, maybe, maybe went to school for these things, but by no means that does that mean that they're like 
uh, an expert, right? Just because the police chief says something doesn't mean he actually knows what he's talking about <laughs> or he or she. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and oftentimes we're f sort of fighting with nameless, faceless government bureaucrats. Um, and, <laughs> sure. you know, sometimes you have a good time at the DMV and sometimes you're there for four hours. So, um, and, and then, like, I think the other thing that's been really helpful for us is sort of a what I like to call like the healthy distrust of authority where it's like, you know, sure. It might be like a public official that you're talking to. Um, but also, you know, like at the end of the day, we're sort of trying to bring this from the, from the, you know, from the, we're bringing, we're bringing our power from the bottom up and anyway. So like, you know, yeah, you treat people with respect and stuff like that, but also that, we shouldn't confuse like that with competency or rightness or fairness or that they're correct. Mm. And so, so just sort of being skeptical of authority is also really helpful. Right. Those people are just people too. <laughs> and they make people mistakes like everybody else does, no matter what uniform or, or title they have. Right. Chris, have you struggled at all with coming up against these more entrenched, more experienced companies with name recognition or, or fancy titles or, or whatever? Do you, do you feel you know, what am I doing here? Do, do you, have you run into that? Maybe you haven't. As far as the outmatch part, I find like some of the, the companies will try to, even with the facial recognition bans, I, I think Amazon spent $20,000 trying to influence that legislation. So I don't have $20,000 sitting around to try to <laughs> buy my buy the laws I want. Right. I mean, they didn't get their way after all, which is which was good. But some of that when you're going up against big companies like that, or or even like police unions want things, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and it's it does feel like the David and Goliath kind of thing sometimes. Like you just, you know, mm -hmm. how how do you come up against that? And on the the other side, that's been kind of cool. Like I got a call from, or um, you know, I got contacted by Tom Simonette at Wired and wanted to talk to me. And I'm like. If, you want to talk to me? That's, that was kind of cool. And then the city auditor asked us for input when they were investigating. They did a an investigation on um, police use of surveillance during the 2020 protests. So they contacted us to ask for input on their their hmm. audit. So that's kind of cool that, you know, the, so there's like cool and, and also frustrating things. Sure. All right. So Rory, let's say, uh, you know, I have a cause that I'm a passionate about, whatever that may be, and I want to get involved. Often the simplest thing, and I recommend this often, if, is just to find an organization already doing something in that area and just throw money at them. I mean, it, it sounds crass maybe, but I mean, they, these organizations need money to survive. And so oftentimes the easiest way to support causes is to donate to people already out there working on those causes so they can, you know, keep doing what they're doing or volunteer time and another thing you could do as well. But if I, if I'm, trying to search for one existing group, uh, either at a macro level, like maybe some bigger organizations like EFF or CDT or whatever, that I, I'm trying to find groups that, that are fighting for the causes I, I'm interested in, or at a local level. Do you have any recommendations for how people might go about doing that research and finding those groups they can connect with? Definitely. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I'm a little biased, but uh, EFF.org slash EFA, you can find all of our great EFA groups and uh, their websites, um, most of which have donation links, so you could right away uh, find your nearest group and support them a bit. I think another good strategy is looking at uh, the type of coalition letters that bigger organizations you might be familiar with, like EFF, are signing on to. And reading through that list, you'll often find uh, local advocates included with their location and their name. By doing a little bit of research there, uh, you can find groups that are aligned with the bigger groups you're familiar with pretty quickly. But if you're really starting, you know, you have no idea what's going on in your area. Um, it is often things like uh, meetup groups or uh, Facebook groups even are ways to find uh, what people are actually already doing in your community. Especially there might not be a great privacy advocacy group in your town, uh, but there might be some technical meetup group that is doing some kind of playing a cyberpunk or something on Fridays. So I think you can find like-minded folks that way, and that could turn into something later on. Um, and then, of course, uh, word of mouth. You might not find groups that are uh, directly related to digital uh, rights, but you are interested in other areas, for example, criminal justice um, and racial justice groups will 
often already care about these issues and know the other groups that care about these issues as well. And you can network from there. So I, I think those are the kind of most curated passive to most active researching uh, things I would advise folks to check out. And I think Freddie has some other thoughts. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think all struggles are medical struggles, right? So there's always an angle kind of to what Rory was alluding to, right? So if you're part of your local school district or whatever, I, I think, or parent-teacher organization, like those are great places to remain. And and there's always going to be an angle where these things sort of intersect because like all struggles are kind of the same struggle, it seems like. So if you're struggling with like, how do I do X, Y, and Z, like you might already be situated to bring stuff forward hmm. but it, again like if you're part of the the parent teacher organization like you might not think that has anything to do with privacy or whatever but you know a lot of our fights overlap right like there's a reason that the the abortion rights were found in privacy rights right and so which doesn't seem obvious to a lot of people but it, hmm. it but it does does mean that that if you care about things like abortion access, then you also care about things like privacy. And that might be a place to get started. All right, Ray. So I've tried to find a group. I didn't exactly find the group I'm looking for for the cause I want to start. Or maybe there's a not a local one and I want to start a local one. Now we're in your camp. I want to do something and I'm thinking, you know what? I remember that podcast with Carrie about the EFA. Maybe I want to start my own group and I'll align myself with that. So how do I do that? Like, what is my first step if I wanted to get involved with the EFA? And then there are other groups, as you mentioned, you guys aren't the only gang in town. Are there, for some reason, is there another group I might approach like the ASLU or CDT or Epic or some of these other guys? What advice do you have for someone who wants to take that next step? Yeah, definitely. So I, I want to definitely caution against over-preparing, <laughs> I think. Okay. Um, setting your first event, um, getting your first plan in motion um, is how you're going to get those initial rewards that uh, keep you coming back to the work. Uh, and make it something sustainable that then you do want to build up and mm, yeah. uh, you know you want to develop more. So I think uh, finding initial ways to uh, reach out to folks in your community and get something started is something I'd recommend. Once you have something going on and kind of a better plan of what you want to do, there are a few resources. One, again, EFF.org uh, slash EFA. We have a handful of toolkits. We're hoping to expand more uh, this year. So look out for that. Um, that kind of give organizers some initial advice and how to hold a successful event and how uh, to reach out to the media to get coverage of your work um, and kind of these initial things that are really helpful for uh, breathing life into your work. We also have an EFA member, Aspiration Tech, uh, which hosts a number of convenings and has some public materials on grassroots organizing and how to be an effective facilitator and engaging uh, local community. Um, and then there are uh, some broader resources like indivisible.org uh, slash resources, uh, which I've personally found helpful in looking through. And yeah, those are some of the, kind of the starting points. Um, and I want to also encourage folks, if you have a project going, reaching out to organizing at EFF.org, the organizing team, you don't have to be in the EFA to reach out to us. Uh, pending our capacity, we're happy to kind of give some initial advice um, or even have a one-on-one -on -one chat to talk through your plans to see, you know, what we've seen work in the past and what you might want to do in the future. Um, so those are kind of the initial resources I'd offer folks. Well, and I think that was fantastic advice. And, and I could totally echo that uh, from my personal experiences that set yourself up for some wins, like make sure that you've got something that's kind of giving you some positive feedback and kind of filling your tanks, you know, because it, at some point this thing does become, I mean, it's one thing where it's an idea and you're all passionate about it or whatever. And then the rubber meets the road and you got to like make stuff happen. You got to fill out forums. You got to file grants. You got to get turned down. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's, there's all these things that can be roadblocks and can kind of trip you up and slow you down and add friction to the whole process. And it really, really does help. And I could, I could tell you from my own experience that, you know, just getting that positive feedback from something, you know, some, mm -hmm. some sort of little success can, it can have a really big effect on keeping you going. So yeah, I would totally echo that as well. Yeah, I've been a part of a number of failed community groups <laughs> that got too caught up in uh, figuring out our governance structure and like our year plan and like all these things and just, it sucked all the fun out of it <laughs> um, and all the kind of initial reward for uh, engaging with the community. It is, people are social generally and uh, the sooner you can get in front of other folks in your community, I think the better. If you had to do this all over again, <laughs> you know, what would you, if anything, what would you have done differently? 
I would have hired an accountant and a bookkeeper much earlier. <laughs> a lot of the the minutia, you know, learning the file things with the state government. Like I realized that there are companies that you can pay to file the paperwork on time, and and things like that. So so I would say that that was a major one that I learned. So another thing I wanted to get your your guys' feedback on is when do I need to think about think big and start thinking about do I need to make an LLC or what is a 501c or you know do I need to do kind of these scary legal things that means I need to hire a lawyer or an accountant or whatever and when do I just need to you know what I've got a local meetup group and I and we have free online Zoom seminars and we talk at the local library at the senior center there's all different levels you could be doing things that and you can be very effective without probably having any of this legal stuff involved but when do I mean in your experience when do I need to be thinking about some of these things when do I need to learn these terms when do I need you know Freddie mentioned we should hire an accountant earlier on when do I know that I kind of need to be in that space I was in that process, trying to figure out all that for us, you know, when I was first starting in, and someone advised me to not become a 501c3 until we were told that we needed to be one. Say if we applied for a grant where that status was required, then that was the time to apply. So and let me just stop you. Like, we, what What is a 503c? Because I'm sure a lot of people out oh, there may have heard the term, but they have no idea what it is. And other things I'm like sorry, social yes. purpose corporation and LLC, you know. It's, it's a nonprofit corporation that's tax exempt. Okay. So we are not one of those yet. We are an Oregon nonprofit, but we don't have tax tax exempt status, but there are a lot of things that you have to do and I'm still learning a lot of the things, but but you have their roles where you can only do certain activities, you can't really lobby. Mm-hmm. Well, a tiny bit of lobbying, but you can't can't make a profit if you're a nonprofit. <laughs> but there are a lot of rules so you don't lose your tax exempt status. The thing is, just even applying to be a nonprofit has opened up the gateway for paperwork because mm-hmm. now we have to file taxes mm-hmm. and we have reports to the Secretary of State in Oregon. We have the reports to the Oregon DOJ. So there's a lot of a lot of work that takes away time from your mission, and it's not the kind of fun stuff that you signed up to do. So, so I would recommend holding off on that stuff as long as you can. I mean, but then, you know, once you have, if you want to get money though, then you have to have a bank account and you have to, and if you're getting money, then you're going to have to file taxes. So it is, there is a certain amount of stuff that you have to do if you're going to accept donations. As far as like lawyers and accountants go, we don't have an accountant yet. We're looking to get one to like set up our books more officially, you know, but not, you know, just to have one in case we have some accounting questions. But as far as lawyers go, we found um, uh, there's a local college near us, a law school, Lewis and Clark Law School has a program where they help small businesses. Hmm. So that I guess their students help you for a much reduced fee. So we did get some advice from their lawyers at one point, and we will go back to them for our future legal needs. But that's another way to not get inundated with all the expenses and paperwork. Just hold off on doing that some of that stuff as much as you can. Well, and like, I don't know if people are thinking this, but like, you don't necessarily need to have a a lawyer or a CPA like on staff. Like, so a lot of times this is for hire, you know, by the hour kind of work that you that you have these people do for you, and maybe have them on speed dial, like, so you could reach out when you need them. But they're not like they're they're not like part of your organization necessarily, right? Exactly, exactly. And when you say nonprofit, when you say you don't make money, you can make. I mean, you take donations, you do get money, but what it's not considered. So maybe explain that. Where does it become? When does it become profit? Like, I mean, there's a lot of these quote unquote nonprofits where the the C-suite folks of the of the nonprofit get paid quite well. So, you know, how does how does that work? Rory may be able to speak to <laughs> sure, this sure. better than I maybe, can. But, maybe you guys don't know. I don't know because I, I don't know. I could just say though that you you are allowed to earn money because you have you have expenses and you mm-hmm. may have staff including that you need salary to pay and. And yes, and and if you have like some kind of events you hold, or if you're doing mailings to people to get more money, or so, there are expenses that you have to cover. So, so you are allowed to make money, but you can't. The goal can't be to make a profit, make more and more money, like like a profit making company. That's and I'm gonna hand it over to Rory to take over. <laughs> yeah, Rory, do you have any feedback on any of that? Um, yeah, I I'm. I want to be clear. I work at a law lawyer. firm. I am not a lawyer. And the law firm I work at doesn't specialize in this area of law. Um, so this is very much just um, 
coming from talking with EFA groups that have considered incorporation. And often the type of uh, restraint that comes with it is a various amount of paperwork, uh, selecting board members, and these initial obligations that are, uh, frankly, uh, substantially more than a for-profit has. An LLC is generally protecting your protecting your personal bank account from right. your uh, business's expenses and loans and financial obligations. So a 501c3 or a nonprofit has similar protections, but also obligations to uh, fit within that. One of which that I think is important to highlight is for 501c3s specifically must remain nonpartisan and not electioneer. So if you decide to go that way, your donors can get a tax deduction and uh, supporting mm-hmm. your work, uh, but you can't weigh in on um, elections or political parties. And some groups um, find that too restrictive and opt for other nonprofit statuses. And yeah, it comes with all these additional restrictions that can be very difficult to navigate. I'd say most groups in the EFA are not registered nonprofits or not incorporated even. I think many of them are remain unincorporated because the work they're doing only raises to a level of risk that they're personally comfortable being affected by, like paying for a domain name mm-hmm. um, uh, or you know that level of financial commitment. But the other big opportunity that um, a lot of folks, once they start getting bigger, they start needing to care about income and expenses more um, is finding a a fiscal sponsorship. Uh, And that also opens up a lot of uh, grant opportunities uh, without having to go through all of those uh, same obligations of incorporating. You can find a 501c3 that is willing to kind of take on your donations, usually Hmm. for a small fee and kind of take care a lot of a lot of that compliance on your behalf. Um, my group, uh, Cyper Collective, got a financial sponsor through Open Collective, which uh, listeners might be familiar with from open source projects often mm. use that as a funder. So we were able to take some donations through there um, that were tax deductible and support our work that way without having to go through all the incorporation headaches. So yeah, I want to echo a lot of organizers will say, avoid incorporation until it's absolutely necessary and, you know, not a moment later (laughs) Um, because yeah, that's a more work and effort being dedicated to uh, work that isn't mission driven work. Uh, Filling out uh, paperwork is not going to have the impact that is the whole reason you're organizing. Right. Right. And it's not as rewarding. (laughs) We got our taxes done. Yay. Yeah. All right, last question before we go, and I'll, I'll make this kind of open-ended because we've talked about a lot of things today. So what are some parting thoughts? What Anything else that you'd like to uh, tell the audience about or any, uh, maybe any other, anybody out there is considering doing this, any advice you might want to give? What, what, what are your parting thoughts here? Rory, let's start with you. Yeah, uh, so this is reiterating a bit. Don't hesitate to reach out to me and the organizing team at EFF, organizing at EFF.org. We're happy to help answer some initial questions and getting started. And the other thing is just getting started, not feeling too intimidated or like an imposter for uh, thinking you can challenge uh, powerful people uh, because powerful people are still just people um, and you have rights that you need to assert regularly. So I think getting organized, getting started, and it can start with something small and regular, but just getting something going initially. Yeah, encourage everyone to try it. Worst case scenario, is you meet some cool people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, not a Which lot. Which is of... actually a pretty good case. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. If that's the worst that could happen, that's, that's great, actually. Yeah. All right, Chris, how about you? Any parting thoughts? I, I must say I have met a lot of cool people, so that is very true. I think just getting out there and 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 talking to people, telling them what you want to do, if there are if there are groups that are doing what you want to do, join up with them. You can learn a lot. You can help them. You can work together. Even if there aren't groups that are doing your thing, if they're related, say if you're interested in privacy, maybe security groups, tech groups, you can really learn a lot of things from each other. And uh, I did ask one, someone for advice when I was kind of starting out, and, and they just gave me some simple advice that was try. And yeah. I think that's... That's good advice. I mean, it's not very specific, but but just try. I think that's that's all you can do. The other thing I 
I really encourage people is to not be shy. The reason I know so many folks at like EFA or ACLU or whomever is that I just contacted them and kept contacting them until they would respond to me. And so I think there's a kind of this habit that we have that somehow these people are, people are unapproachable or whatever it is, but you know, like everyone, they're people just like the rest of us. And so just, I encourage people to give things a try and not feel like, you know, you need, you know, you don't need a degree in political science to get up in front of, you know, the legislator. Um, so that's what I would recommend. All right. Thank you guys so much. It was, that was a really interesting discussion and I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your stories. Thanks guys. Thanks for having us. It was really, really fun a program to be on. Thanks so much for having us. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. I'm really glad to have had them on the show. That was a great discussion. And I hope you found that inspirational. And again, you don't have to start your own group. You don't have to be the leader of something if you don't want to be. There are probably groups in your area today that are doing things like this. Certainly, if you're in a large enough metropolitan area, I certainly encourage you to go to the EFA's website. Again, EFF.org slash EFA will get you there. There's also a link, of course, in the show notes. You can see what it's about. You can get links to other groups and see what kind of things they're doing, maybe as inspiration or as examples. But I also encourage you to try like meetup.com. That's a great place to find groups in your area with similar interests. But maybe, just maybe, if you're really passionate about something and you don't find somebody locally doing something already, you know, maybe you can start up your own thing. And actually, after this interview, I'm considering working with the EFA myself. I'm not sure how that's going to work since it's kind of mostly just me, but I'm definitely looking into that and something I'm going to consider doing as well. So real quick, I think it was Rory who mentioned the Earn It Act. Uh, that's E-A-R-N space I-T Act. It stands for something as they all do. Some sort of retronym as, as always. It's actually been around for many years. It keeps coming back perennially. It's another one of those think of the children bills where, you know, we must protect our children from bad things on the internet. And of course, you know, it's really hard to argue with that. But the net effect of this bill is essentially ending true end to an encryption and ending privacy and snooping on our devices. And it's, it's just, again, it's another one of those good intentions paved the way to hell kind of things. But this bill just will not go away. Every year, somebody reintroduces it and it's trying to make its way through Congress again. I think it just made out of one of the Senate committees. So if that is something you would like to look into, uh, I've got a link in the show notes where you can find out more about the Earn It Act. And EFF has, of course, a nice write-up about their objections to that. Patrons, as usual, will get some bonus content with my guests. We'll have some extra Q&A with Rory and Chris. Freddie actually had to drop, but you will get some bonus questions with them. And if you'd like to become a patron, there's a lot of great benefits for doing that. Uh, go to fdsd.me slash support, and you'll see not only information about joining on Patreon, but some other ways that you might be able to help me do what I do as well if you'd like to do so. But on that page, I also maintain a list of other ways that you can help support my efforts to reach more people and educate the masses about cybersecurity and privacy. So next week, we're going to be talking to some folks about hacking satellites and they've actually got a capture the flag tournament, which is a hacker tournament for hacking an actual satellite orbiting the earth. And that satellite was launched last weekend successfully from a Falcon rocket. It is now at the International Space Station and will be deployed, I don't know, in the next couple of weeks, I think, just in time for DEF CON where this CTF will be held. So we'll be talking about that as well as you know, why satellites are so important and why this sort of effort is crucial to making sure that all of the satellites are more secure. I also got another interview with Josh Corman coming up, and I will be talking soon with somebody from the EFF who is running for office in California. And we'll talk about several different interesting policy issues. Lots of great stuff coming up. So if you have not subscribed, now would be a great time to do that so you don't miss any of that goodness. All right, one more thing before we go, as I promised early on, and I've been teasing for several weeks now, uh, I will be starting next week launching a new campaign to distribute my version 2.0 Dragon Challenge coins. If you have not seen these things, I encourage you to go to 
fdsd.me slash coin two C O I N and the number two. Now this will take you to an article, uh, related to a promotion I did last year, the, the first round of giving some of these away, but moving forward, I'm going to be doing it a little bit differently. Again, along the lines of what I was talking about before the show, I want to encourage my audience to go out and do good deeds. And I'm going to keep going with the, the dragon medieval knight theme uh, as I do it. But instead of making this a short time thing where I do it mostly for patrons, I'm actually going to be creating an ongoing program where I look for you guys to go out into the world and do good deeds. And I will give you a method by which you can nominate yourself or even perhaps nominate someone else to receive a challenge coin. Because that's that's the real spirit of these coins. I want these coins to be something that you earn, something that I bequeath or bestow uh, upon people who I believe deserve it as a thank you, as a way for me kind of to reward that behavior and hopefully encourage that behavior. So I'm not going to give all the details now, but I will give them all next week. So stay tuned for that. All right, that will wrap up the show for the week. Thank you for tuning in. Take care out there. Stay safe, everybody. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.